Good morning, ECC. So, uh, one of the things that I have said to people many times during this season of pandemic has, as, is that uh, other pastors and I, pastors I know, all sort of agree that it feels like we're reinventing church and reinventing pastoring. And that is sometimes very challenging and sometimes very tiring and sometimes, frankly, very exciting to see what we can do, how we can adjust to these sorts of things. Strange times call for new ways of thinking and doing things. And we've even, as most of you bar- know, but we've borrowed a, a term from the business world. We pivot. We pivot. We take what it is we're already doing and we, we turn it in a new direction and we go in that direction with it. So we learn to use Zoom. I am so over Zoom. I wish I'd bought stock in Zoom in January, but otherwise... I am over Zoom. We learn to live stream our services. We adapt our Bible studies, our youth groups, our children's ministries, our men's and women's groups. What we do at Bower each week, it's all been adapted. Triple L Club, even our summer XP vacation Bible school, we adapted. We changed in some way. As a family, we have spent more time on FaceTime talking with friends and family. We've even had a couple of game nights on FaceTime with our kids. We've adapted, we've pivoted, and I imagine we, we all could say in some way, shape, form, or another, we've had to do the same thing. Strange times demand that we're always willing to change course, and we keep asking the question, how can we do this better? What needs to change? Things were new and strange in the book of Acts as well. The church is growing, which is a good thing. People are coming to faith, but now... Gentiles are coming to the faith as well as Jews. And anytime you take Gentiles and you inject them into what was originally a Jewish enterprise, which the church was, you're going to have many challenges. You're going to have many theological and cultural challenges, the likes of which they'd never seen before. So they had to adapt. They had to change. Things got messy in the early church because of this Jewish-Gentile issue. You see it all throughout the New Testament. Things got messy, but there were also great opportunities for new ways of doing mission and ministry as well. And I imagine it was stressful at times. I imagine it was very tiring and also very exciting all at the same time for them as well. And with those new threats and new opportunities, the Holy Spirit is very much at work in these things. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, Jesus has asked a question. He has asked why his disciples do not pray and fast as John the Baptist's disciples do. Jesus answers the question with three mini parables. We're most interested in the last one. One small parable about pouring new wine into old wineskins. Jesus says in Luke 5, 37, No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Jesus likens proclaiming the kingdom to new wine that is poured into old wineskins, which will destroy both of them, the wine and the animal skins into which you pour the wine. The old ways of piety and religion no longer work. They, They cannot stretch or expand like the animal skins need to do if they're going to hold the wine. They cannot stretch or expand to contain this new thing that God is doing in Christ. In the coming of Jesus, new ways of piety, devotion, 
and religious practice and new ways of mission must come into being. In many ways, the entire book of Acts, it turns out, is a demonstration, almost an object lesson of the parable of new wine and new wineskins. It happens over and over in the book of Acts. So the good news in all of this is, for them and for us in our changing and strange times today, is that when we yield to the Holy Spirit, God provides the new wine and the new wineskins. When we yield to the Holy Spirit, God provides the new wine and the new wineskins. We at ECC have had to develop new wineskins in the midst of the pandemic, and we will likely continue to need to do so, changing little things every week. And my guess is, if the church is to survive and thrive, if the church of Jesus Christ is to survive and thrive, we're going to be developing some new wineskins in light of the current passion and energy and conversation around race as well. In Acts chapter 13, we get a picture of the early church adapting and changing with the times. The new wine of what God was doing in and through the early church necessitated new wineskins to hold that wine. Without these new structures, the whole thing would be destroyed. Before we get into Acts 13, however, a little backstory. Because of the persecution that broke out in chapter 8, many of the earliest Christians were scattered to different regions and cities. And in particular, for our purposes, the city of Antioch, which you can't see Jerusalem, it's down at the bottom here, the city of Antioch, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Things are going well in Antioch. People are coming to faith. And as I said, not just Jews, but Gentiles, Greeks as well. The, the church in Jerusalem, however, was sort of the headquarters of the church at the time. And they heard this, and they sent Barnabas to go and check things out. The world was changing, as was the nature of this Jewish Christian faith, and they needed to have eyes on the ground there, eyes on the situation. So Barnabas, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, Luke says, goes to Antioch to check things out. And he sees that the grace of God is at work in the city of Antioch, and he sees that people are indeed coming to faith, and it appears that's good enough for him. But... He has a plan to keep things moving in the right direction. He has a new wineskin he wants to develop. Verse 25 of chapter 11. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. See us. C.S. Lewis says that the word Christian really just means little Christ. Little Christ. He wrote, quote, Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. So it turns out that Antioch, the city of Antioch, sort of had a habit. A, they were known for picking on groups of people they didn't like very much and giving them names that were meant to be demeaning. And it is likely that the name Christians was just such a label. It was not meant as a compliment. But the name stuck. And then if we want to talk about new wine and new wineskins, let us consider Saul of Tarsus. He who once persecuted the followers of Jesus. In fact, he started this whole persecution thing that scattered the church. He's now discipling them. Barnabas and Saul stay in Antioch for a whole year teaching those new believers how to follow Jesus the Christ. In our terminology, how to become Christiform people. That's right, Barnabas and Saul spent a year with those new Christians teaching them 
and leading them in the ECC touchstone of transformation. At the end of chapter 11, some prophets arrive in Jerusalem, and one of them, Agabus, predicted that a severe famine was coming upon the whole Roman world. And in response, we read in chapter 11, verse 29, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the others and, uh, the brothers and sisters in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul take the offering to Jerusalem, and then at the end of Acts chapter 12, they return to Antioch, verse 25 of chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so in addition to Barnabas and Saul, there are three people mentioned as prophets and teachers in Antioch. Simeon, who is called Niger, which means dark complexion, so he may have been from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, who was definitely from Africa, northern Africa, modern-day Libya. And Manaen, who was, quote, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. This is a translation of a phrase, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, that could be translated as to saying he was either a, a fellow member of the court, Herod's court, or uh, that he was actually raised with Herod as a companion or as a foster brother. The point is that in this church in Antioch, there was diversity. There was diversity. There were people of color in leadership in the church in Antioch. There were Jews. There were Gentiles. There were people of different walks of life socioeconomically. One of them, at least, was in some way well acquainted with Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. That's, that's the Herod. You remember there are several in the New Testament. That's the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. And here they all were worshiping together. And we think we have an issue when Republicans and Democrats end up in the same church. Verse 2 of chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This group of people, with all their differences, this group of people can come together, they can worship God, and they can hear the Spirit's leading. They prayed, they listened, and in some way they sensed the Spirit telling them to send Barnabas and Saul off as missionaries. We have a similar thing that happens in meetings here, whether it's the council, the vitality team, the ministry uh, planning team. If we get to a place we need direction, we pause and we pray and we wait on the Spirit. And then we come together and say, what do you, what do you sense the Spirit might be saying? And we look for consensus. It is clear that the leadership of the church in Antioch knew how to listen to the Spirit. Now, I believe, I've said before, I have a very robust understanding of the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit is always at work and always speaking, but I do believe that we need to learn how to listen to the Spirit and to respond to the Spirit. The believers in Antioch did so in part by engaging in a couple of spiritual practices. They worshiped, they prayed, and they fasted. They worshiped, they prayed, and they fasted, and they did these things together as a community, not just as individuals, as a community, with all of their differences. And in that context, God spoke, they heard, and then they acted on what they had heard the Spirit say. They sent Barnabas and Saul into the world on the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. 
Barnabas and Saul demonstrate the ECC touchstone of presence. They were sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. We are all sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. In another sense, there are those whom we send in different ways to other parts of the world or into groups of people. These we call missionaries. We call them missionaries. We, we get this idea of sending missionaries from passages like this one in Acts chapter 13. The church and the Spirit sends people into the world. And so we are sent and we send others. These first two missionaries of the church in Antioch are sent off to the coast. They go to the island of Cyprus. They travel throughout the island of Cyprus to the other end to the city of Paphos. There they meet a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. This false prophet is an attendant to Sergius Paulus, who is a proconsul, a governor who is appointed by the emperor for that certain province. The proconsul, whom Luke gives us the detail, is an intelligent man, becomes aware of Barnabas and Saul, and he's intrigued, so he invites them to come so he can hear what they have to say. But the sorcerer then tries to get in between them. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Paul announces what may seem to us like a rather harsh sentence upon the sorcerer, but it clearly is what the Spirit had in mind because it happens. The sorcerer, Elimus, becomes blind, an event that, if we're paying attention, should call to mind Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, for he too was rendered blind for a time. He too had to be led by the hand. Those, that phrase was actually used. In Saul's case, his physical blindness led him to spiritual enlightenment, spiritual vision. He could see. He was blind, but now he could see. So there may be a sense in which God wants to do a similar work in Elimus. Maybe this miraculous blindness will lead him to, to faith as well. Maybe he will be blind, but then he will see. Now, of course, how Elimus responds to this is really up to him, and there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. In fact, Jesus alludes to this at the end of his parable about the wineskins. I didn't read this verse, but he says there in verse 39 of Luke 5, And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Sometimes people get set in their ways and they don't want the new wine at all. They're happy to stay with what they know, even in the midst of miraculous, a miraculous event that might suggest there are other possibilities. The new wine of the kingdom is right in front of Elimus, but he may prefer the old wine instead. He may refuse the new. What we do know is that whatever impact this event had on Elimus, it definitely affected the proconsul. Verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now I want you to notice that the miraculous event of the sorcerer's blindness got his attention, but it was the teaching about the Lord that amazed him. The blindness got his attention, but it was the teaching about the Lord that amazed him. Now don't get me wrong, I'd love to see more miracles 
But the truth is, the most convincing thing in the world is followers of Jesus who live out his teaching, who live out his word. When we become little Christ, when we become Christiform people, people notice. They may not like it, or they may love it, but they notice it. They may even be amazed at the Jesus they see in us. And perhaps that is the true miracle. And this is where we are officially told that Saul was also known as Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name, but he had a Greek name too, Paul. Now for most of my life, I don't know about you, but for most of my life, I assume that the reason that Saul's name became Paul was because of the dramatic change he felt he needed a new name. New person, new name. But it turns out that it may have been a bit more practical and even mundane than that. It turns out that the, the Hebrew name Saul sounds very much like the Greek word solos, which was a, a, very, a not very kind thing of making fun of the way a person walked. It was not a compliment at all. So it may be that Saul says, well, I can't go by that name. I'll be a joke. No one will listen to me. So he takes on his Greek name, Paul. New wine demands new wineskins. If ministry was to be effective in this new reality, then Saul, a self-proclaimed Hebrew of Hebrews, Saul would pivot and he would use his Greco name, Greco-Roman name instead, Paul. And all of this is about what it takes to be effective as followers of Jesus in the world, in the ancient world and in our world today. Now, I cheated a bit in this week's good news statement. I made it conditional. I don't usually do that. I usually just like the good news to be good news. But in order to get to this good news, we do have to yield to the Holy Spirit. When we yield to the Holy Spirit, God provides new wine and new wineskins. Don't misunderstand me. New wine is always there, but we will not experience it, enjoy it, unless we yield to the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is always at hand, but we can refuse to enter into that kingdom. That is, unless we yield our lives to the Spirit by professing our faith in Christ, and unless we learn to live our lives in partnership with the Spirit by submitting to the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus, we will not know the blessing of new wine at work in us and through us in our lives. We will be content with the status quo, and we will miss out. So with that, the only proper response to this good news is that you and I practice yielding to the Holy Spirit. We practice yielding to the Holy Spirit. The folks in Antioch did this, as we said, by worshiping, praying, and fasting together as a community, not merely as individuals. They did it even though they were very different from one another. While there's always more we can learn about worshiping and praying, I hope we know that's true, there's always more we can learn about it. My guess is the, the one of these three disciplines that uh, might be a bit strange for many of us is fasting. Because I don't know about you, but I don't like to go without my food. Fasting. However, for many years, in my calling as a pastor, not, not the whole time, but for many years in my calling as a pastor, I have engaged in some form of fasting. Usually, I take one day a week that I fast as I am preparing to preach. It's not that I fast in order to get God to give me a good sermon or to help me write a better one. We cannot, fasting is not about twisting God's arm or manipulating God. No, I fast because in my experience, fasting heightens my awareness of God and God's voice. 
In my experience, fasting heightens my awareness of God and God's voice. It causes me to become more sensitive to the Spirit's leading. I liken it to watching a movie on high-def Blu-ray as opposed to popping in a VHS into the video recorder. I just see it a little better, become a little more aware of what's going on. So if you want to try fasting, and I would recommend it, I've included a link to an article on fasting for beginners in our Bible app live event. Friends, God is always about doing a new thing. God is always about doing a new thing. He did so at creation. He did so when He gave the law to Moses. He did so when He sent the judges to rescue His people when they were in danger. He did so when He sent the prophets to correct His people when they were off in the wrong direction. He did so when He gave us His one and only Son. He did so when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him on the throne at the right hand of God. He did so when He sent us His Holy Spirit. He did so when He inspired His Word. God is always doing a new thing, even today. God is always sending us new wine. The question is, the question is, will we hold back? Will we say, no thanks, I prefer the old. It suits me just fine. I'm not really interested in changing. Will we miss out? Or will we receive this new wine in these strange, new, ever-changing and challenging times in which we live? Will we receive the new wine and God's provision of new wineskins to hold it to contain this new thing God is doing? Will we take that risk? And step out both in ministry as a congregation and in our lives as people in our relationships to discover new ways of ministry and mission in life. Which will it be for us? Which will it be for you? When we yield to the Holy Spirit, God provides new wine and new wineskins. Would you pray with me?